0: to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your movie podcast for discussions of the misfires, the unknowns, the movies that might have escaped the purview of the general populace but are still worthy of your time and energy. Uh, Joining me, as always, is...
1: Catherine.
0: And I'm your amiable co-host, Tim. And we are here to discuss uh, a film that some people may be familiar with if you're in the know in terms of horror. Uh, and that is 2014's Last Shift. Uh, this is another movie that, at least as of August, September of 2022, uh, is available for free on the YouTubes as part of the YouTube Movies Free Collection, which I have come to, to enjoy. I, I enjoy Free movies on the YouTube's and and this is one of them, uh, along with Quarantine, the remake of Wreck, starring that girl from Dexter, and Oh yeah, The Mimic, not Mimic, but The Mimic, the Korean one,
1: slightly one. different.
0: Or What Lies Beneath, starring Harrison Ford.
1: I uh, saw that movie in the theater. <laughs> I am sorry yeah. to say,
0: oh, man. why did That's I see that movie? in the theater? Yeah, you because know, Harrison Ford. Well, uh, I mean, that's the only reason anyone saw that in the theater.
1: I, I went, I mean, what was I, like, 14 when that came out?
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, it came out in 2000. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I just, I remember, the only thing I can remember about that movie is that there was a, a person who's sitting behind me who had, like, uncontrollable throat noises.
0: That oh, yes. They, they just, ugh, <clears throat> <sighs>
1: Um eventually mm. it became like it became like a like a word almost like honk.
0: Because there was a bit of a so it, it became the their end. tacit approval of the on-screen actions. So yeah. when Harrison Ford, you know, attempts to murder his wife, you know, he was like, Oh, I agree.
1: It ended up being more interesting than the movie.
0: <laughs> Not too hard. <laughs> um it was a uh an early uh it was an early DreamWorks thing. Um, but yeah, no, Harris Ford and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Directed played, by uh, Robert
1: Zemeckis, too. Like, what was, the hell that, yeah, was that? That? That, was
0: a, that was an old Bobby Zemeckis joint. Robert sure Zemeckis, was. what are you doing? Uh, just making movies. Just having fun, you know? Just enjoying my I'm just, forest I'm just funny. a
1: goofy little guy having a good time.
0: I have the big glasses. But, but we're not here to talk about any of those. <laughs> Maybe at some point. No, we're here to talk about Last Shift, directed by Anthony De Blasi. Um now I, I you know, you go look up Anthony de Blasi, he's got some credits. Uh, this this is one of them. Uh, the most the one that stood out the most to me was that he was a producer on Ryue Kitamura's The Midnight Meat Train, uh, which after the original Hellraiser, I feel fairly confident in saying, is one of the best Clive Barker adaptations, uh, easily. Like,
1: I think that came up in our, our Clive Barker episode.
0: Yes, we talked about uh, uh, when we talked about Lord of Illusions. Yeah, we, thought- we, we talked about this. Um, but all, it's worth reiterating here that um, fantastic film, Vinnie Jones. Very early in his career, Bradley Cooper, like alias era, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> um, and, and just a, a solid, solid little horror film, uh, not perfect drags a bit in the second act as most of them tend to, but excellent premise, great adaptation and Clyde Barker was involved, had lots of input on it. And that's, that shows, um, cause I'm going to tell you this too, I'm, I'm getting sort of weirdly excited for the Hellraiser reboot that's coming to Hulu. In uh, a month or two, um, it, it's they've only shown one very simple teaser of of the new pinhead and played by a woman, which uh, has has the incels up in arms. So they're they're real mad about that.
1: You yeah, um, know what aren't they mad about?
0: <laughs> oh, they're mad about She Hulk throwing boulders farther than Hulk from time to time. <sighs> women women existing. Uh, people of color existing, like just there's a lot of things in the world that they're just really upset about, and and one of them is that a uh, mystical being that lives in a magic box is female instead of male this time around. <laughs> um, so you know we got that going for us, but I after after the the short the sort of stunning, frankly surprising. Uh, greatness of Prey, the the new sort of predator prequel on on Hulu, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Uh, it is a fantastic film. I, I have zero notes. A lot of people have been complaining about things like, oh, the animal CGI isn't very good because there's a lot of CGI animals in it. It takes place on the Great Plains. There's you know, bears and rabbits and dogs, stuff that it, you know they wouldn't have had the money or time to like throw a rabbit on the ground and film it. So they just CG'd it and I'm like, I don't care. Maybe maybe I've just, maybe I've watched too many of those fantastic beast movies and seen so many shitty CGI animals at this point that if it just, is it, is it it bear? And I look at it and go like, yeah, that's bear, (laughs) And I'm fine with it. I don't know. I'm willing to accept that I'm wrong about that. But Prey is so effing good. (laughs) And just like a breath of fresh air that it, if the, if the creative powers that have now taken all of these 20th century properties that Disney has consumed and doesn't know any, doesn't know what to do with. Right. But now the 20th century Fox group can sort of take these properties and start doing cool things with them. Cause what it sounds like is that the 20th century Fox group is being treated like another silo, like Marvel or Pixar, right. Where They've got their creative head at the top that's sort of managing all the projects. And then it's their responsibility to just create content according to their internal rules. And success breeds freedom, right? That's basically what Kevin Feige has earned for himself with his billions and billions of dollars. Kevin Feige gets to do what Kevin Feige wants to do. And do you think he talks about himself in
1: the third person like that? I He's just he sitting must. at home going, Kevin Feige yeah. gets to do what he wants to do today.
0: <laughs> Kevin Feige gets to wear his Wakanda forever hat
1: today. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Feige wants two muffins for breakfast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Feige's cold brew will be, will be fresh. I don't, I don't know anything about cold brew. I can't say anything about coffee. Um, but it, that's where my brain went. Uh, yes, I, I would think someone at that level of success has many, many internal conversations where they refer to them in the third person. Uh, maybe that's this the destiny for all Hollywood producers as they just start speaking <laughs> about themselves in the third person. Steven Spielberg gets to go to the store.
1: Today. <laughs> Steven Spielberg S- loves his grandkids. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Steven Spielberg's going to fly in his private jet again. And piss off <laughs> all the environmentalists. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But in any case, uh, the guy running 20th century right now is a dude named Steve Asbell, who is super active on Twitter and a wonderful follow if you want to see him talk shit to all of the people online that know him. And uh, I, I follow Scott Wampler. We talked about that before. Um, but Scott Wampler and Steve Asbell are friends. And, and so Wampler, I forget the, the weekend that Prey came out. I don't think Wampler got to watch it until, like, Sunday or Monday. And then he tweeted about it. He's like, hey, pray, pray whip's ass. You know, it's the best. Everybody go see it. Asbel responded t- to his tweet and just said, like, yeah, real fans watched it on Friday. But whatever, motherfucker. It's like, oh, my God. This is the CEO of 20th Century Studios. <laughs> Talking shit to this guy on Twitter. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he said, you know, motherfucker. But he was like, yeah, real sure fans that. watched it on Friday. And his, uh, I do love, at least the last time that I looked at his profile pic, it's him sitting in his office chair with a face hugger on his face. Nice. So, seems like a cool dude. So yeah, I think Hellraiser is good, but uh, Midnight Meat Train always gets a shout out from me because it's a a truly well done, not just Clive Barker adaptation, but it's just a good, it's a good horror film, uh, horror flick. So he was a producer on that. I presume a fairly low producer, probably more like line producer, maybe even associate producer. It's, it's hard to say, but, um, uh, he's listed as exec producer, which eh, we'll see. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, But anyway, so, so this is one of his directorial efforts of which he's only had a few, but, uh, last shift is in many ways, what I think I look for in a good, especially indie horror, but really any horror film. Uh, the closest analog, and, and since we've been talking about Prey, I'll throw this up too. The closest analog to this that we've seen sort of big budget produced, and it wasn't even that big of a budget, I guess, uh, was something like 10 Cloverfield Lane. Right? This is a this is a a bottle picture. It is is a capsule film where everything is basically taking everything is taking place in one location. And uh, I think these are great premises for horror movies. I think the restriction of being in a single location of not being able to sort of travel is, is really key to developing a sense of dread of using a location and a place to sort of like anchor you when things go crazy, you know, and, um, last shift is a really good example of that. Uh, so this one, I, I guess we can briefly cover the story. It's pretty simple, uh, to encapsulate, I think. Uh, in essence, this is the last night of operation for a old police station that is being shut down and everything has already been moved to the new police station. And we follow a rookie cop on her first shift. Uh, and she has been selected to basically watch the last shift of this, uh, police station as they are closing it down. And the really, the only reason she's there is to monitor it in case anybody comes by not realizing the new station is open or, um, because later that night, a hazmat team is coming to empty out the evidence room of any potentially hazardous materials, which is kind of like the last step of shutting the place down. And so she's going to be in this police station by herself for the entire night, right. Working the night shift. Uh, Again, solid premise straightforward simple and then of course things kind of go nuts from there um so what were your initial impressions uh of last shift before we get to you know deeper territory
1: uh well i came into it with no expectations whatsoever it doesn't it doesn't look as cheap as i think it probably was to make like that is a compliment it's wrapped up in sort of a (laughs) sort of an insult but like I expected this movie just based on like the the key art for it I sort of expected this to be a bit worse looking Mm -hmm. and it's actually it's great it's got a great vibe it's it's the movie looks good and it's fun I don't know. I, I was not expecting to enjoy this um as much as I did. Of course it you know, it has some stumbling blocks, which we'll talk about. But yeah. Uh, I mean it's
0: it's not a perfect film. I don't want to paint this as a a immediate slam dunk, the world has missed out on a, a true gem.
1: But it's surprising. But
0: there, it is. It's surprisingly well done. Um it's it's got a sort of deep story to it that unfolds as this night wears on. Um, and and that's probably where things start to get a little hinky in terms. Of, I think this actually would have been better keeping the story simpler. Um, it tries, basically the main character gets kind of wrapped into this larger narrative that's been going on for a while and she was kind of unaware. You know, it sort of attempts to sort of emotionally tick all these boxes that it didn't necessarily have to. Um, But again, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, But I I totally agree. This movie could not have cost much. I, it's, it's hard for me to estimate budget because, you know, there are equipment costs and this was seemingly a pretty small crew. Uh, It's very small crew in terms of actors. I think there are only like six or seven actors in the entire project. And a couple of those are just voice actors. Uh, You know, there's, this is a movie that has a lot of phone conversations. Yes. Yeah. We'll <laughs> There's a lot of characters talking on the phone because she is alone in this police station. And so, um, this, this is another film too, where I think it makes you appreciate the level of skill required of an actor to carry an entire movie. Right? So you, this is the kind of movie that makes you realize why Tom Hanks's Castaway was such a triumph of acting <laughs> skill. <laughs> yeah, because people want to
1: talk shit on Tom Hanks so bad, but yeah, uh, dude's amazing. Car-
0: carrying an entire movie on your back, where you are quite literally the only person on screen for like ninety percent of the time, is really challenging. Yeah, um, it requires a, a depth of variety and emotional range from an actor that, quite frankly, only some of the best actors are probably capable of. Producing Like I could watch, I could watch Denzel Washington on screen by himself for two hours. Easy. Like book of Eli, bring it on. Right. Okay. Like, I don't care. Um, but this, this young, uh, young actor, uh, was it Julia Harkavy. Is that her name? I think, or Harkavy. Like I'm not Juliana Harkavy. Um, you know, she's done some other stuff. Uh, she's the lead in this. She, <laughs> she originally was in, um, and this is the the connection that I, I, I didn't know if you had had researched. She was the little girl in India in Quran's A Little Princess film. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like that because I mean okay, dear listener, if you don't know, and I'm I'm telling on you a little uh, bit, I have seen Alfonso Quran's A Little Princess uh, dozens of times. I would because, watch it right now. Because my co-host this as, as a, a young as uh, a young uh, young woman, uh, watched that movie a lot. Uh, so Harkavy was, was her, her little girl that she met in India. Um, that was kind of her first film role. Didn't do a bu- didn't do much after that. So you can tell that was kind of like, she might've gotten her SAG card for that one. And then just sort of like finished school and did whatever. Um, she was in another movie that I've seen a bunch of, and that's, uh, not one that I would expect anyone else to have seen. But when my kids were young, they really loved that Dolphin Tale movie with Harry Connick Jr. in it. That was like the real life story of the dolphin that lost its tail. And then they built it a prosthetic Man, tail.
1: I, kids are the worst. I know. Dude. <laughs> no I've, probably seen,
0: I've seen that movie like a dozen times. She was also in that. You know, she's a lot of background roles, a lot of bit parts, a lot of like walk ons, 11th on the call sheet kind of stuff. Um, so this was really one of her first like lead role. Like this was her movie. Yeah, like nothing else was happening. Um, she's the only other time that I've seen her is she uh, in recent recently she played the Black Canary in the Arrowverse shows so like Green Arrow and Flash and all that stuff on the CW. She was the Black Canary character. So, you know, she's had a little bit of success there. She's been on like the Legends of Tomorrow show playing that character and stuff. But like this is this is just her. Like this is just Julia Harkavy for eighty minutes. Um and and while in some cases I think that's really good, in other cases it's not. Yeah. And she is engaging to watch.
1: She's she's Yeah. I think she is good playing the sort of vulnerable rookie, because, you know, we've seen that many times before. Nearly every time there are police officers in a movie, we see a rookie. Um,
0: Like Leon Kennedy in Welcome to Raccoon City. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just threw that in there because I wanted to say that movie is garbage. Hot, sweaty, Resident Evil tinged garbage. Um, But yeah, in any case. No, you're you're 100% correct. We have, that's part of the other issue is that we have seen the rookie character trying to prove themselves many, many times. It is, it is a, I mean, it's a star, it's a stock character at this point. And I feel like she brings way more to it than that, which is great. Um I, I think that she's, is, is doing a lot, if anything, I feel like, the weakness in the role might've actually been in the other direction a little bit where she needed, we needed to see a little, a little bit more of what might've drawn this person to become a police officer and go through this training because a lot of times I felt like the training failed her immediately and then she didn't really have it. Um, But I think again, part of, part of this film is her sort of coming to realize that she has personal stakes, in what's going on around her. And, and so the training eventually sort of like all falls away. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how highly trained the police officer she may be. Um, There are other things going on here that are going to supersede that training almost immediately. Um, So a, a little bit about the circumstances. So we have this cop in this abandoned police station So apparently a lot of this happened very quickly um, from some of the articles that I read. And and there there isn't a ton of writing about this out there. Um, It was one of those movies, though, I will say that back in 2014 when it came out and it hit Netflix relatively quickly. That's where I saw this back in 2014, Uh, maybe 2015. But it was another sort of like Netflix watch for me. Um, But apparently this came together very quickly. De Blasi had been very interested in doing a sort of, you know, small scale film. Uh, something in a single location. And, and apparently this was actually happening in, in a town in Florida. Like they were, they had moved to a new police station. The old police station was still open. They were in the process of shutting it down and they were able to get in there. in like it's last week of active operation and filmed this. So they had limited time, limited resources. And supposedly again, I don't know how much of this is true or not. The police, uh, chief, I guess, or commissioner in this town was completely unaware that this was being done, that the film was being made. And he, when he found out he was furious and, and demanded answers for like who had allowed this and who had said it was okay. Cause they're, they're in an actual police station that while empty is still has all of the requisite police station stuff, and, uh, so there was some controversy around it, but I, I kind of feel like that's, I kind of feel like that's kind of awesome. You know, it kind of yeah. gives it this gorilla feel like, Oh, we had this, I, like, we had like a, a sort of base idea for what we might want to do with a movie like this. And then we got the chance to execute it and we just effing did it, you know, and that, that's kind of neat. I I've found over the last you know few years that I'm willing to give a movie a lot more. Leeway when it is legitimately scrappy. Right. When it is legit you know, it's not just this big budget production that could solve all yeah. these problems with money. It's just like we we had this idea, we wanted to execute on this idea, we made it happen. Uh, you know, maybe that that Richard Link Ladder, you know, Kevin Smith kind of indie filmmaking where it's just like, this is what we got, this is the thing we have, we're just gonna make it work. Yeah. And and that's awesome. Like I, I love that and I respect that. And any time you can get, I mean, it's it's hard to make a film, period, no questions asked, to make a film with additional restrictions on top of it even more so. So kind of awesome to to see that happen. But in any case, so some some interesting background. Uh, I don't know much more about, you know, sort of de Blasi's goals with the film, but I, I can appreciate that they sort of like built a story to fit what they had. I, I think that's pretty awesome. Agreed. Um, so the the basic thrust of the story, as we said, is this last shift in this abandoned or soon to be abandoned police station. Um, but I think the film has some other interesting tones. Uh, if you look at any of the key art, there's obviously some you know there's there's a lot of pentagrams, there's a lot of <laughs> demonic references in the posters, you know, and stuff. Which I really I really hate horror posters from like the early 2010s. They just you know, it really. it.
1: They just own yeah. it in. It's so it's just,
0: sad. I mean, they they just lack originality. It's just, we'll take a half-naked girl with long black hair, and we'll put her in a hallway, and everything will be kind of desaturated. And then we'll have like a, splur- a s- splash of red or a splash of some color to offset it all.
1: Demon um, eye contacts.
0: It's the same thing, honestly, when the Evil Dead remake came out. And I was so disappointed by the visual presentation of the Evil Dead. Yeah. Remake. Because it was just that red poster with the the girl in you know the girl in a dress and then like the title treatment from the original but slightly askew. Like it was just like, dude, I mean like this is evil dead. These right? graphic like the last... designers
1: and <laughs> they they need to earn <laughs> something. Like I it's mean, just fonts. It should be more than fonts.
0: Yeah, it shouldn't just be fonts and single colors. Yeah. You know, like poster design I mean, th- I mean, you think of like Saul Bass, you know? Oh, dude, I found out the other day, and maybe I knew this fact, but like everything, and I sound like a boomer cinema fan. Everything <laughs> used to be, but like, okay, so I was watching uh, Light and Magic on Disney Plus. Uh, it's there, like just the the illustrated documentary history of industrial light and magic from beginning to now. And it's, it's this docu-series. They've got brand new interviews with fricking everybody. Joe Johnston, uh, John Dykstra and, and all this, I like, it's, it's great. Like it's mostly stuff that if you've watched any kind of like star Wars behind the scenes or just behind the scenes for, you know, big ILM movies like Jurassic park, you've heard a lot of these stories before you've seen a lot of these images before, right? Like don't get me wrong, but there is a lot of new stuff and there's a ton of new interviews. And so, uh, Richard Edlund, you know, one of the earliest Island members, helped developed, helped Dijkster develop all of the motion control cameras. Was the primary industrial engineer in, uh, of most of the Dykstra Flex camera that they built, and all of that. Like, I had no idea how much stuff that guy did. Do you know? Did you know that Richard Edlund designed the Pignose amplifier? No. Yeah, like the Pignose, the one that like Zappa used to play. He designed that thing. He mm. built them all. Mm. Like he was the first one to do a miniature guitar amplifier that you could just plug into via battery. Ridiculous. Right. He did that while he was working there. <laughs> what the shit, man? Like for most people, that's like your career. You don't have to do anything else, whatever. So, but then Edland, cause there, I mean like that's kind of also the story of the first episode of light and magic is, then basically saying like there wasn't anybody to do this stuff. Right. And all of them were working as like commercial companies because they used to do a ton of like weird stop motion effects for commercials, Jolly green giant shit. Right. And, and so Richard Edlund, the guy who designed or co-designed the Dykstra flex camera is the dude who hand designed the star Trek font because he was working at the company that did the titles for Star Trek for Desilu and mm. they know they knew they needed a new font and they didn't have one. So he designed it. So Richard Edlin designed the Star Trek font. Wow. And then he like makes a joke about like, I've never seen a dime off of that, even though they use it on everything. It's like, <laughs> holy shit. You just Oh my God. So it's just like that kind of stuff just blows my mind. But anyway, um, so great documentary just sidebar. But I mean like, that level of originality, right. Where you just like bespoke designing the thing that's going to make this just sing. Right. It's just, it's becoming such a, a I mean, I don't want to say a lost art, but just something that studios don't seem concerned about anymore. Right. Yeah. Stuff like that. You know, it's not like the, I mean, they obviously have art departments that put them together, but it just doesn't seem like there's anybody really trying to do like really original stuff. Anymore. I think so, I think
1: probably part of that is is the way that we watch movies has changed. I mean, even in 2014 when this movie came out, we were already moving away from posters being the the thing that sells you on a movie because nobody's standing in the middle of a theater lobby anymore looking at posters saying we should see this to What they want to do, yeah, right,
0: yeah, hundred percent, yeah. I mean, you're you're really designing a you know a, a streaming hundred,
1: thumbnail, uh, a hero image a, a, for your, a streaming, your thumbnail. streaming landing page. Yeah.
0: Yep, I mean it's true. I mean I can't deny it. Uh, I will go back to Prey a little bit because I I did see the poster for Prey, and and while it's not like exceptional, I did appreciate it because you know it's it's just Amber Mid Thunder, the, the main actress's face, and where you know comanche war paint would be um it's just like the predator blood like the green predator blood on yeah, her simple and it's just a picture of her it's simple but very cool very striking you it's one of those things you know immediately what it is yeah right that the color of that blood is so specific that you know immediately okay. oh that's what this is yeah you know i mean and that's okay marketing knows what. To depend on but just needless needless to say last shift is not going to blow you away i mean the titles are impact black screen yeah. white text i mean like this movie is about as bare bones as you can get and it's it would be easy to understand why you might oversee it. you know overlook it if you saw it on a streaming service um but it's it's one that i think you know is worth you know sort of checking out especially for free on youtube uh all right so um Initial sort of thoughts wrap up before we move into sort of, I guess, heavy spoilers.
1: Um a lot of shitty, shitty fucking horror movies come out every single day in this godforsaken world. And uh, this really is this is a pretty good movie. Um I I I think more people should watch this. I hope they do. It's free.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, it's free, so why not, right? I mean, it's it's free, and it's eighty-seven minutes with credits. Ah, oh, so, love a short movie. I mean, we're we're getting into that sweet spot of like, why not, right? Like, what did you know, you're not wasting. What else an were you gonna do? Right? <laughs> nothing, nothing. That's right. Um, so uh, I'm I'm definitely in the same boat. This is one that you know, while you know, this was a movie that, as I said, was kind of like. You know, if you go to Bloody Disgusting's top ten horror movies of 2014, this was like the number nine because you know you got to show your cred, and be like, hey, you guys don't know what a real horror movie is, uh, you know that you gotta you gotta do that for online brownie points with horror fans. But but this is definitely one of those you know little hidden gems. I kind of put it on the same level as um, that Canadian Lovecraftian horror movie that came out a few years ago called The Void. Oh yeah. Uh, I kind of I kind of put it in the same ballpark as that, right? Not perfect. Goes a little hinky at the yeah, end. Really, kind of like does more, but, but a really I good really time. Liked. That was a
1: good time. Yeah.
0: I mean, I I was more satisfied by the practical creature effects in the Void than. Well, for comparison, that was uh, the Void was a few years later, but I couldn't help but think of that thing remake from what 2011 or whatever, where they it was it all took place at the Swedish camp mm. and Mary Elizabeth Winstead in it, Norwegian, and they yes it was were the Norwegians. Norwegians. i'm sorry i'm sorry that's a very important distinction now because of your current <laughs> geographic location um, yes it was the norwegian camp excuse me um but like that movie replaced all of its practical creature effects which didn't look very good either um with cg effects and it was just an abomination right just an yeah. absolute shitshow and then the void came along a few years later, and it was just these, you know, like Canadians in an abandoned hospital, similar setup to this, and and they're able to do more with practical effects at creating, you know, good gore and, and stuff than than this you know, multi multi million dollar Hollywood film. So it was. It, this is definitely sort of in that same rank for me, um, and in, in some ways, I like this one a little bit more because it doesn't it doesn't try to do as much. Right, because the more you try to do, the more potential mistakes can spiral out of control, and this one has some of those. We'll address those very shortly, but um, it's it's a really solid, encapsulated, sort of well-executed horror film with a, a pretty stellar right at the end. Like the the very ending of it is pretty good. Um, everything leading up to that. Maybe not. But it's it's a great time. And, and I think that this is one that if you haven't seen, and I would bet most people hadn't uh, or have not seen it, uh, this is one I think that's worth taking some time to, to uh, investigate. It's, it's not bad. All right. So um, I guess we will get into spoilers. And, well, where do you want to start? Um, I mean, we can kind of work through it front to back, but we can jump around a little bit too. Like I said, the premise is not that... Difficult to wrap your head around, right? Stuck in a station, weird things happening, right? Not yeah. really anything too. Yeah,
1: nothing surprising much there. But they do establish a really, really good atmosphere. Um, yes, because one of my pet peeves with the "you're stuck here overnight" is that <laughs> the places that people end up being stuck in aren't scary.
0: Yes, very true.
1: Yeah. Um, and this. I, I kind of liked it was a little bit of a contradiction. You would assume that a police station would be a very safe, secure-feeling place. Um, right. Because, you know, we do tend to think of them as like, I'm in trouble. If there's a police station, I'll be safe there. But this is, this place is nasty. I was really impressed with yeah. how nasty it looked and felt.
0: I, I do like that. I mean, having, you know, worked in, in a, a variety of locations at this point, from industrial to educational to, you know, retail, uh, every, every place when you get past the public facing locations is, is pretty terrible, yeah. right? Like most, most businesses, most, you know, places where the public is interacting, they will make sure that your public facing areas are clean, free of trash, etc. But then when you get back into kind of the bowels of the building, generally that concern drops significantly. Right. And, and I like that this station either because they dressed it that way, which they certainly could have, but given that it was an already sort of abandoned police station, I, I suspect more that it, it was just sort of, they let the upkeep go and they get kind of ran with it. Um, Cause she goes into a lot of like janitor's closets and things like that. and And there's that sort of like, very real feeling. Because, <laughs> you know, janitor's closets, ironically, are usually like the most disgusting places in, <laughs> any, in any job, right? They're just horrible. And there's just crap everywhere. Um, which, again, just horrifically ironic that the place where you keep all your stuff to clean is usually like the trashiest place. But whatever. <clears throat> but yeah, like the this building, I, I think some of it has to do with how de Blasi shoots it. Almost everything is shot wide and long. Yeah. Um, he really emphasizes the length of hallways. You know, there's always like a, a key light at the end of the hallway, either naturally or, or maybe that they inserted to sort of draw your eye to the fact that there's distance in the frame, uh, which, you know, is, is a sort of subtle effect. But I think it, it always reinforces visually that Harkavy is alone, yeah. right? This space is empty and she is alone in it. And and it's a, a good choice. Like I said, it does a lot. I mean, but even some of the other subtle design approaches, um, you know, I, I have a feeling that they kind of like grimed up the front windows so that people wouldn't be able to see in and see what they were doing. Um, but it creates this effect, like even when she's looking out these big, you know, glass doors at the front of the building, everything's just grimy, mm-hmm. and you know, you can't see. It's 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 really interesting, you know, sort of how the the place. Feels gross,
1: and and the fluorescent light. He is using every bit of the fluorescence in all of these scenes, which fluorescent light just makes everybody look terrible and everything look scary.
0: Very true. Yeah, I mean, you can tell they, especially in the ceilings, they they had gotten some sort of. I imagine it was some sort of movable rig that they could throw up that would sort of tamp it down a little bit. But this is a film that has a tremendous amount of single direction, harsh key light. yeah, and, and the fact that it looks as good as it does when that is kind of the primary lighting situation is, is a bit of it's, it's kind of amazing, actually, because, yeah. um, again, fluorescent lighting, as you said, makes everyone look bad. Like there is no circumstance under which fluorescent lighting is going to to make a human being look like a natural human being. Yeah, Just, it, it everything is you out, out and washed and, out.
1: Yeah. It's, it's not good.
0: And so, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. It, it's, it's a really interesting and consistent atmosphere. And I think the way that it builds, because, so this film takes place as, as we said, over a single night, um, at the start of the shift, she comes in, She's a rookie, and there is a, a single officer sort of on duty. And he is just a colossal butthole to her immediately. So it sets this tone: like she doesn't feel welcome, she doesn't feel wanted. Um, you know, and, and then on top of all of that, she is sort of like truly alone in this place. And that comes back a few times, and there are some insinuations later for why he might. Be treating her this way, you know, that maybe, you know, he's aware of things that she's unaware of and is trying to sort of maybe push her away from the job, which is kind of a running theme is that nobody in this, this young woman's life want her to be a cop, right? There's a phone conversation later, again, in a movie that is nay plagued with phone conversations, there is a phone conversation between her and her mother where her mother's like really doubtful of this career choice. And, and it seems like several other people are are sort of in the same place where they're like, I don't know why you're doing this kind of thing. It's, it's revealed later that her father was a cop. He worked at the station. He died at the station. And, uh, the circumstances of that are the mystery, if you want to call it, of this film. Um. So I guess, I mean, I guess there's no reason not to just get into it, uh, and say it, but I mean,
1: the story is not remarkable enough to, to hold it back from anybody. (laughs) It's
0: it's no grand reveal, right? Like there is no like, Oh, uh, in essence, the, as, as the night progresses, um, several several sort of key things happen. First, obviously she starts hearing things, seeing things, Uh, a strange homeless man winds up in the lobby and pees everywhere.
1: Which is uh, just which, the worst.
0: Yeah. And he's barefoot and he's peeing on his own bare feet. Uh. Uh, such a, you know, such a, a great scene. Um, but I, I do like there's, and, and if, again, Harkavy is carrying this film on her back. Uh, she is, is doing everything to propel this story forward. And so I like that, you know, they, she gets the guy out of there. She locks the door so he can't come back in she goes, she gets the cleaning equipment. You know, there's sometimes there's cuts that go too far that don't communicate action enough. And then sometimes there's ones that jump, but you know, they, they sort of justify and explain well enough that you can follow along. And the Blossie seems to have a pretty good handle on those kinds of cuts. Cause there are a few sort of like time jumps over the course of the night as things progress that I think sell pretty well. Don't cause much confusion, which for me would have probably been one of the, largest scene to scene stumbling blocks that could have presented in this movie is how he conveyed the passage of time. And and I think it most of works good. But so she goes and she she gets stuff to clean up the pee from the homeless guy. And then she sees that there's a pair of boots in the janitor's closet. So she takes them outside, sets them on the front stoop, ostensibly for the homeless guy, so he has shoes. Now I I think in a movie that could have just sort of run right over character development. I think that says a lot about who she is. Yeah. As a character, like it's it's a little bit of it's I mean it's not subtle. I don't want to maybe be like, "Oh, what a great subtle screenwriting technique to have her be kind to a stranger." But that's the kind of thing that in a movie like this would theoretically just get ignored cuz you know, do we have the time? Is it really necessary? Do we need to see this to know that she's a good person? She's a cop. Aren't all cops good? (laughs) Uh, uh, LOL. Um, but, But I think it reinforces that she is essentially a good person and wants to do the right thing, which becomes important for how the film progresses. So things continue to happen. There's a really good scene of her. It reminded me a lot of a Silent Hill game. She's in the locker room. And she finds a picture of a man and a little girl, which we later find out is a picture of her and her dad. And then, as she turns, and then when she turns around, like all the lockers are open. That was right? great. Like every, that's great. I've, there are, including that one, there are two scenes in this movie that I think are absolute top tier horror banger reveals. Right, that locker moment is one. It's very subtle, but that's the kind of shit. That's the kind of horror that I think is so unsettling that it does more to set tone and establish what's coming next than, you know, any jump scare, shrieking violin, door flying open, you know, whatever. Right. You know, the wish upons of the world, if you will.
1: Yes. And movies don't do it enough. Like they don't indulge enough in these little moments.
0: I mean, because that's what film allows you to create is, you know, especially when you're focused on a single character's perspective. And and some of the articles I read about de Blasi said that that was apart from working in a sort of contained location, he really wanted a film that was sort of rigidly from the perspective of a single character, right? Like you are basically seeing the world through her eyes, her experience. And that's one of the things that film allows, especially horror films, to do is to lock us in so distinctly to a single individual that we are forced to perceive the world through them. And so we see things as they see them, like those lockers turning open, right? Like if, it, if they had just shown, you know, like a dumber director might've just put the camera up in the corner and then like they're standing there and then you see all the doors open around them like, oh, see all the doors open. And it's like, no, you don't have to do that. And the character wouldn't have seen them open. If they'd seen them open, they would have run out screaming. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's, it's one of those, those like subtle choices. The, the second one comes a bit later and I, I guess we'll get there, but ultimately uh, she gets a phone call um, even though all of the emergency calls are supposed to have been routed to the news station. So she's not supposed to be able to take any sort of like active crimes, right? Dispatches elsewhere but this woman keeps calling saying that she's been kidnapped that she needs help. Um, something's wrong. And, and, you know, she can't really help her, can't do anything for her. So she just keeps telling her to call 911 and like get help there. Um, so that's really neat too, because it establishes this powerlessness, right? That she, she doesn't really have the ability to do her job effectively in this way. And that was really cool. Um, I also really liked, do you remember the scene where she's like sitting in front of the big archival shelves? Yes. Yes, yeah, I do. I, okay, so I love archival shelves. And when I say archival shelves, they're like the big ones that I mean, most of them are motor controlled, like electronic now. But like the old ones, you basically like spun a wheel and it would like move the shelves around, right? And they were because they're huge. Those didn't scare and me. S- stuff on. Same. I don't know why, but like those giant ass shelves just seem so dangerous and intimidating. Presumably it's some kind of like Star Wars trash compactor effect, right? (laughs) That I know that I know this thing is just, if I step in here, it's just going to squish me. And that's exactly what the film preys upon. Like they just, they kind of like start shifting on their own. They start moving on their own. And, you know, she just she never really gets time to fully investigate stuff as well. Like normally one of these big things will happen and she'll like go to look at it and be like, Oh, what was this? Was it a change of barometric pressure? You know, like she, (laughs) like she's getting ready to look at it and then something else will happen to draw her away. So we don't get to like think much about it. We just get to sort of embed the moment. So it's a really smart, like moment to moment horror choices, right? There are things happening. They're definitely strange but we don't get to really lean in on them effectively. And we don't necessarily get to investigate them satisfactorily to dismiss it, right? So everything just sort of snowballs. Um, And so like, again, the film's playing with perspective, right? Like it's, is what's happening real? Is it not real? Is it a combination of real and not real things? Like there's this this big back and forth and I'm not gonna say the movie does it, 100% hundred percent right like i I think it I think it really struggles with the ambiguity of what's real and what's not real especially towards the end but it does create a lot of tension during the sort of middle section of the film in, in some interesting ways.
1: it it feels like the the movie was pressured into committing to like this is real this is really happening or some kind of Big moment at the end where I I kind of wish that it had stepped it back a little bit. Maybe it hadn't been such a such a crazy finish.
0: It's a little bit more, and you know, obviously, uh, the diary of uh, or the the autopsy of Jane Doe did some similar things here, and in some ways, I think it was handled much more deftly in that film. Yeah, um, that movie's not uh, to be frank. That movie's not trying to do as much with perspective as this film is like, this one's really trying to lean into it, but it's the same essential problem that, you know, you're trying to establish that there's this strange ambiguous thing going on, but yet there are real people around too that could be interacting with them. But how real are those interactions? And and this film kind of doesn't know what to do to really sort of solidify that stuff. Um, cause like the homeless guy eventually, like there's a break in and the homeless guy comes back. Right. And, it, and he like breaks in and he's like going through the records room and he's trying to find stuff. And, and so like, by the time we get to the end of the film, the question is like, well, was that guy real though? Yeah. Or is, or, or was it just her imagination? You know, like what's, what's the again like you know she does like judo moves on him and stuff so presumably he's real but again <laughs> is he or is he not and it, and so like that kind of stuff i think the film doesn't handle with as much much assuredness as it probably could but but even without that um you know there's there's some interesting stuff going on so as the night progresses the homeless guy is said, pretty breaks in and she throws him in a holding cell and pretty much from the moment she throws him in a holding cell things kind of go hey why Um, and, and, you know, there's power turning on and off. Um, and so again, I, I, even though I said we weren't going to beat around the bush, we continue to beat around the bush. (laughs) Um, there was, there's cult stuff. There's weird weird satanic cult stuff. Right. So it's, (sighs) it's revealed slowly. And I, I appreciate that. Like we don't really get the tradition in a movie like this. What you would expect is around the halfway point, somebody is going to like take about four minutes and just be like, "Oh, yeah. remember a couple years ago there was, you know that guy, and he had that thing and and they would just sort of explain it all or they would be, be like, a oh.
1: researching in the files scene.
0: Yes, um, <laughs> you have a Begool problem. <laughs> You'll call Vincent D'Onofrio on Skype and, uh, and he'll tell you that you have a Begool problem. In this case, you have a John Michael Payman problem. Which uh, so- was
1: super funny because I was watching it with my partner and we had just watched, I mean, like a couple of nights before Hereditary because he had never seen it and I love Hereditary. Oh, yeah. And he's sure. like, Payman is that the same? It is. And I was like, well, yeah, probably. (sighs) And then from that moment on, I was like, well, I know what the movie's doing now.
0: Mm
1: -mm. But yeah, we had a little little doubling Um, of payment there.
0: Oh, I'm in religious studies class. Uh, Yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's some cult stuff. And so the story that gets revealed, which I, some of it is revealed by, um, Harkaby herself. So her father was a cop and he and another group of police officers went to a compound, right? It sounds sort of like a, maybe a David Koresh sort of Jim Jones sort of situation where he's got this you know, group of girls, it really, well, Charles Manson, like that's really what they're doing. Um, it's, it's just that.
1: They're doing all the cults.
0: It's all the cults. I mean, just throw it all in there. Big culty blender and, and you know, let, let the horror emerge. You just blend it up and it gets scary. Oh yeah. So great. And so he's, he's got this cult of women uh, or this cult involving the abuse of a lot of women. And they were kidnapping young girls. Some of them joining the cult. Some of them getting murdered sacrifices, you know, I mean, this is the part of the movie that you're, if if you have watched a lot of this, you're gonna go like, oh, okay, mm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, got that, yeah, yeah, seen that. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of it, this is the least original part of the film. It's not it's not debilitating, like it doesn't ruin the movie, but you will definitely do a. It's nothing like how the cult was handled in like Mandy, right? <laughs> Where that cult is like. Ridiculous and they're kind of idiots, but they're dangerous anyway. You know, like it's not like
1: unexplained.
0: Right. And just like who would do this? This one they they really want to over-explain it. And so this guy, this John Michael Payman, they were they kidnapped a bunch of girls, they're getting ready to kill them. Um the, the rookie cops, dad, and some other officers had gone in before backup arrived to try and save as many girls as they could. And they did, but they i guess her dad died in the raid and then
1: they all got murdered
0: right but like the 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 like the big reveal is that the the public was told that all of them were killed at the compound yeah that they that's where they died but what really happened was that the cop, including her dad had gone in and they did subdue them. They brought them back to the station and then they all committed suicide at the police station. Yeah. And, but the, the, the police commissioner, and everybody, they didn't want that note. And so, um, her dad dies later. And, and so this is like her impetus for why she even decides to become a cop in the first place. And, you know, like that's, that's why her mom's like, Oh, is this the right choice? And then maybe why the Sergeant is so mean to her. Cause he doesn't want to see her father and her following her father's footsteps. Maybe like, you know, there's, there's some interesting stuff going on there. Like, I, I like that they tried to connect all of these elements together. Um, but at the same time, I think it would have been scarier if she was just caught up in something that she didn't have any connection to. Yeah. You know,
1: or if it was, if it was something that wasn't connected, but was using like her own personal tragedy against her. I've been ruined by the silent Hill games and I would love (laughs) to see more movies embrace that. Like I didn't, this has nothing to do with me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Like I I'm just here. Like I don't, I didn't, do anything you know i mean like we talked about a little bit with the grudge that that can be a double-edged sword right when you have no emotional connection to the proceedings that can render me like well then why do i even care why your character is involved right but yet here you know i think you keep the dead cop father right that like oh i want to make my dad proud of me so i'm here but having the father be one of the cops that died in the apprehending of the payment clan and then um you know, getting caught up in this like suicide pact that may have may or may not have turned the police station into this like demonically haunted everything is location. wrapped up in a neat
1: little package.
0: <laughs> right. It's it's one of those things where in any screenwriting school, all the choices that they make are the right choices, right? They're not wrong, right? They're they're it's set up, payoff, and set up and pay off. Like it's it's fine. But yet, at the same time, like I think it actually undermines the horror in this a little bit because the personal stakes divert from the very real danger that she's in in this particular case. And I think it would just be it would be more interesting to see her as an actor struggle with not only understanding the situation but to understand it why why is this happening to? me. Right. Why, why, you know, is it just cause I'm here? Is there anything I can do? You know, like I almost think that it would have been better if she had had less connection to it in some ways. Um, again, I don't think it's, it's the wrong choice. I don't think it damages the film or makes it unwatchable or anything silly like that. But I do think that I, I kind of would have rather seen a rookie cop thrust into the situation no clue what's going on, figuring it out and then trying desperately to do the right thing and maybe still doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Like I, I think that that would have been fine. I, I don't think the adding the layer of daddy, I must make you proud because the cultists murdered you. Like I don't, I don't know if that was necessary, but I agree. Well, I mean, but we'll get there. We've still got some, some things to talk about. So the night progresses and things get, you know, More and more strange. Break into the homeless guy, of course. The lights keep going off. The lights keep flickering on and off. Man, that's just such a great effect. I love it when people, when movies do that well. Um, There is a lot of flashlight work, a lot of spotlight filming in this, which I, I do remember even my initial watch of this being like, man, that's really bold. Like you don't generally see that kind of thing. I mean, horror movies, it's more common with, you know, the flashlight cam and, and stuff like that definitely happens more, but like straight up, well, there are a, a bunch of shots of this where she's just backed up against the wall and there's a, a circle spotlight on her and, and the scenes go on for a while, like where she's just spotlight. It's, it's very interesting. I, I remember thinking at the time, like, that's just not something you see very often. And, and uh, I still don't really, um, you know, you found footage that's super common to have characters kind of like, you know flashlight, circular beam shadowed, I guess, but not in a a more traditional sort of film structure would you typically see a character just get almost like a theater spotlight. (laughs) He's just like, bam, up against the wall. It was very interesting. Um, But so, uh, so I mentioned before two really great horror scenes, the locker room scene being one, the second scene comes pretty quickly as another police officer arrives to check on the rookie. Right. And he said, he's really the one that introduces the idea of, you know, what really happened with the payment clan that night. He says, Hey, um, you know, I was with your dad when we went in, you know, he was a hero and he's the one that's like, he would be super proud of you for what you're trying to do. And, and, you know, it's this really nice moment. They kind of flirting with each other. Like there's this little, like, Hey, you want to get coffee sometime, you know, or something like that. And, and so like the guy's super nice, but everything has been shot at this point. In such a way that when the reveal is made, you're like, "Oh, it got me." Um, it it's great. Like this may be, I mean, this is the one scene that, if you watch this movie, I think you should watch it for because it's really artfully done. Because she's like behind the front counter at the police station, she's you know reading a book or messing on the computer or something when he comes in and she's freaked out already. She's anxious to have somebody to talk to. And the whole thing is shot either um, from her perspective, so you're seeing him head on, or if it flips to the reverse shot, since she's sitting down, they frame the camera at, like, hip height, right? Like a Sergio Leone, like, you know, reaching for the gun, hip height. And you don't think anything of it, right? It's like, of course, she's sitting down, so why not put the camera there? But then as the dude turns to leave and goes back to the front door, you see that he has a giant hole in the back of his head.
1: Got me. I just... (laughs) I did not see that coming. I was so comforted no. by that moment. And I thought, well, this is about when the horror movie would provide a little bit of relief.
0: A bit of relief. Because right? that's and- that's
1: what all the other ones do. They would have a person show up and then that person wouldn't be able to help. And then she would wish that person was there and they'll show up at the ending after everything's gone to hell. But nope. No, they didn't play into that cliche at all.
0: Not at all. It was and- sad. And, and like she's trying to talk to him and he just like stoically walks out of the building. Right. Like he just doesn't respond. And, and it is, it's, it's just a, I would say a near perfectly executed horror moment. Like there is very little that I can think maybe, you know, having one or two more shots that get closer and closer. And maybe you see just a little bit of something on the back of his head, but it's not enough. Like, You know, just just maybe to tease it a little bit more out, and then the final like big bam. But I almost I almost love just the straight up. Now I can see the back of his head. Now I know that he's dead. This is a ghost. I've been fucked with. What the shit? Like it's it's fantastic. Best sequence in the film by far. Um, Because here is where things go a little bit nuts. I, I guess before he shows up, there she does have an interaction with what I presume is supposed to be a. Lady of the night, uh, Marigold, I didn't care for that scene and and watching it a second time to prep for this, apart from the bit of exposition she provides about the payment family, which again, it's questionable how she would know or what, I mean, unless she too is a spirit who has been summoned from beyond the grave to to this night, I, I don't really get that impression that that's the case. Um, but yeah, she like has a conversation with her. And again, it's supposed to be this like moment of human connection. It, that didn't really play for me. I think that probably could have been excised from the film. I agree. Um, you know, it just seems like there might have been a better way. I think
1: I, dead I, cop should have been her only human interaction other than the chief.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that scene is so good that it could have gone on a lot longer. Like it really could have been longer. She could have questioned him more and, and stuff, but I I understand they're trying to spread the exposition out. They know, obviously de Blasi knows how horror films are made and the kinds of things that you come to expect with any horror film. And he's trying to avoid some of that. And I get that, but You know, maybe it was too that he, you know, maybe these are all his friends. Maybe they're all his actor buddies. And he's like, I'm making a movie. Come on down. We'll (laughs) find something for you to do. I I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Um, but what, what begins to happen after the reveal of the cop, she kind of knows everything's on the girl has continued to call the one that, you know, can't seem to dial nine one one. And then finally the, uh, Dispatcher that she keeps calling to say, Hey, this girl keeps trying to get a hold of me. Um, she gets her name at one point. The dispatcher looks her up, and she, of course, was the last victim of the Pavement family, and that she was found beaten in um, uh, the forest or something. And so then that girl begins to appear. And I was, you know, we just did The Grudge, obviously. We talked a lot about J Horror, you know, the stringy haired girls crawling on the floor, the ceiling effects that uh, came kids. along with that. And, and this is that this, that is this, well, this is this movie's attempt to sort of have one of those. Um, what did you think of, of wasn't it Megan or something? Um, I don't, I don't remember what, what her name was, but she, she begins to appear to her at that point. Um, and, and she is for all intents and purposes our are sort of like main horror entity for the last chunk of the film. Um, you know, she's crawling on the ground, her bones are all cracky and brokey. I don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> and her face is all screwed up. You know. It's it's a decent, I will say it's a decent cosmetic application.
1: Yeah, like it it looked like it, fine. It, it looks fine. It okay. was just knowing who it's supposed to be was I just think stuff like that is scarier when I don't know what it is or what's going on.
0: Agreed. And and that was my thing, because towards the end, I mean, there's, there's one shot of her in the hallway where she's sort of chasing, well, not chasing, but she's sort of crawling behind her, and you, you hear the bones cracking, and... Um, all of that stuff. I thought that one was fine, but then there's a a pretty obvious jump scare later under the desk that doesn't really work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fine, you know, but there you get to really see, and again, they're shooting this in like harsh fluorescent lighting. There is no makeup in the world. That's going to look great under harsh fluorescent lighting. And this one doesn't it's, you see too much of it. Like that's the problem. You, you can just see too, too much of, uh, of it, and it, it just doesn't it doesn't work as well as it could have. But you know, it's choice. I, I'm not angry about it. I think it's fine. I think and it's. We do need- I think
1: it's the era. I think it. You know, this came out at a time when that was that was really cool to have the spooky lady. I mean, I I don't. Mm-hmm. I think that's going away, or it's like not as popular now to have the to do that (laughs) but I don't know it just that just was like a product of the time Uh,
0: yeah I would agree I mean you needed you needed the scary lady to put on your poster yeah which they absolutely did um nobody has learned the David Fincher seven lesson that if your movie is scary you can just put the name of the movie with like a really great and original title treatment on a black background (laughs) it's fine right like you don't have to do anything. Else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've got um, some of that. And then, of course, as we said, the big reveal that the cult is uh, potentially inhabiting this police station. The dispatcher, who is our, our main you know, exposition guy towards the end of the film, the dispatcher says, you know, hey, maybe we're closing down that station for more than just like the facility kind of sucks. Maybe it's because people have been having crazy experiences there for the last year or so. since so the cult committed suicide yeah. and we just want to like burn it all down. Bob. But like, we just, we're not going to be there anymore. Um, so it's, that's kind of cool. Um, the, The film starts to lose me a little bit when the surviving member of the payment clan shows up.
1: I hated that. Because
0: it's so bad and so dumb and acted so badly. Um, Because again, we've spent at this point like 60 minutes with with Harkavy in a bunch of white hallways and desk areas. And she's been, you know, pretty uniformly awesome. Like she's actually been doing a great job. And then this girl who's supposed to be, cause like the payment clan had members that got away and they're being monitored. She was awful. Yeah. Like see a community theater practice guys. Awful. Right. Like she's bad. She's pointing the gun right at her face in a way that would make it super easy for her to get the gun away from her being a trained police officer and just nothing happens. Um, Uh, The eye lines seem a little off. I I don't know. Like this whole sequence was bad, but she shows up. She gives a little bit more exposition about the clan that, Oh, John Michael told us he would come back again. Ah." You know, just like that kind of stuff. And, and then she kills herself and it doesn't matter. Like none of this matters. It's just a waste of time. Why are we doing this?
1: Yeah. That felt like it, Um, it wanted to be scary. And then it just, uh, it wasn't, I don't know. I don't know how to explain to people that the unhinged cult lady like that because I've seen that before too. Like I, that whole setup, yeah, was sort of unsurprising. And I, I've seen other movies do this, and it never really works. It's always just kind of annoying and cheesy.
0: Yeah, so let's lean into that because, quite frankly, as the cult stuff ramps up, my my issues with the film begin to multiply.
1: As the cult Um, ramps up, as does my annoyance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which is true of everyday life as well. Um, But the, the, I, this is another movie that has, it tries to take like a hymn, you know, like a religious song and make it creepy.
1: I hate this. I want movies to stop doing this.
0: They need to stop doing this. Just stop it. Doesn't work, and then all you wind up with is somebody singing on screen. That's all you get like, out of this. It's not scary.
1: We all saw uh the 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 turn of the screw movie, what what was that called? The one from the sixties. And that oh, had the creepy um, kids singing and it, it worked. Did. Yes. But sure. But you've that was a long time ago. <sighs> yeah, like you've we've all seen that moment in the birds when the little kids are singing. That was a long time ago. We've seen uh, that. We don't want to see that just, anymore.
0: And quite frankly, I mean, if you're going to do it, you need to... <laughs> this is a weird thing to say. You need to kind of pick a banger, right? You need yeah. to pick, like, a, a good one. And the one that they pick here, it's something I don't even remember. It's something about, like, the lamb will come for you or some dumb shit like that. And it's like, just stop it. Like, stop it. Um, and, it and it just... Again, you can tell like the idea behind it was to, to build this intensity that, oh, we hear it hummed early in the film, you know, you hear the tune and then, oh, you, she starts hearing it in the hallways. And then like when the cult people finally do start showing up, it gets louder. And then, you know, and then at the end she's singing it because, oh, is she a member of the cult? Now, you know, like, I, I understand it. I know what they're doing. But it's not working. It it doesn't work. Right. Like it's, it's a, it's an old style of using audio to create tension and it's, and it's been seen so many times that I just, I think it's kind of lost its effectiveness. I agree. And, and, and I just wind up and, and maybe it's me, maybe that's just me and my reaction to, to like culty type stuff. I know that's a part of it you know like the the singing together and and using music as this communal shared act i like I know that that's part of cult behavior of course but as a horror trope it's lost its effectiveness on me. yeah like, I, uh, I I just don't respond to it in the way that the filmmakers want no. anymore I don't either it just makes me mad I don't, I, just get with, like, like, I don't have a problem with like i don't have a
1: problem with like a musical cue or with music being involved but it has sure. to be done really. It has to be done with a lot of subtlety, in order to stay scary, I guess. And this was not subtle. This was very,
0: yeah, was very uh, overt, yeah. very over the top. You know, I am I'm, I'm a big fan, or potentially a big fan of, you know, playing the hymn on, uh, you know, a clinky old out of tune piano or something, and then maybe having a character hum it. But, but yeah, the, the extensive nature of, of how it's integrated into this film doesn't really do much for me um,
1: I also did not like the projector scene
0: uh, yeah so <sighs> I yeah, okay. alright, so let's I guess let's talk about the staging of this so she's, she's reached her wits end, right? She has, has come to the end of the road. She's sort of lost it completely over the course of the night. Uh, the beaten up girl chases her through those records cabinets again. And then she goes down, I guess, is it holding? Cause like the the homeless guy was still in there and she kind of finds him and then she gets trapped in a room or something that might be earlier in the movie, but there's a lot of weird stuff. Like the music starts coming through police radio and stuff. Right. And that's another point where I was like, Oh God, stop it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But she, but it makes her take the radio off, which is what they needed her to do. I thought it would have been cooler if the, the, like weird the the beaten up girl that's chasing her through the record stuff if she had snatched the radio off and like ran away because that ends with nothing right she basically just gets in her face and then it ends yeah and it's like well you could have just used that if you just needed to have her not have a radio anymore because of things that are happening at the end that's fine but why have you know like <laughs> what well, looks like barbecue sauce <laughs> out of it so she can't use it anymore it did like, look like barbecue sauce it was barbecue sauce it was, it was very like, that's, thick that's, that's sweet, baby. Rays, that's yeah. delicious. But then she winds up in a holding room. I guess we do get the bag heads, uh, which I was gonna. I was curious to see what you thought of the bag heads, because um, like the when they when these these weirdos kill themselves, they put the bags over their heads before it happens, and then or well, I guess they were like pillowcases or something, and then pay, John Michael Payman. Kills them. And so now, like, she's seeing these baghead people as they come, as they've come back alive. And, you know, they, they paint some symbols on the walls in blood. And the production design kind of fell apart for me here. Yeah, It's like, okay, who did this? I, I guess it's supposed to be the homeless dude, maybe. But it's just, it's very silly. And it looks, I didn't mind the baghead design. Because, like, they're all kind of best... It, Messed up and, and well, torn, and you know it looks they're just, okay.
1: They're just they're they're philosophically confused because they have like some occult symbols and pentagrams and like the anarchy symbol. <laughs> yeah. the anor-
0: <laughs> and That was, I wasn't going to say it, but there was the inclusion of the anarchy symbol that really was like, hold on a second, guys, what are, what are we but doing here? What kind here? of cult
1: is this again? <laughs>
0: <laughs> like we've, we've got the, the, you know, the, the demonic cult representation of payment. Okay. Congratulations. You used Wikipedia, you know, but, but we also have just like the anarchy symbols. Yeah. What, what was their what was their I, policy? Uh, then, uh, you know?
1: well, and, and I just I, I really, really hate. I don't I don't know what this says about me, but one of my biggest pet peeves is the evil home video. I don't like it when movies do that. I don't like it when they're like, I found, I found this mysterious home video of, uh, of, of all these people dying. I didn't like it in Sinister. That's my least favorite thing about that movie is that they find the stupid super eight movies because Mm -hmm. they're like movies made in, in, 2005 and some little kids using a Super 8 camera like give me a break but anyway this isn't hey man, about how much a, I don't like Sinister
0: he, he, he bought it from the Sears catalog it was
1: a gift from the Bagul
0: um, <laughs> you've got it <to> cool. <laughs> that'll never not be uh, oh, every time I think of that line, I just laugh <laughs>
1: Sums up problem. the whole movie.
0: <laughs> and I like that movie. I, I, I like Sister. Yeah. Right? I I do, but that that entire thing is just ridiculous. So silly.
1: But this um, this yeah. smacked of that that same where did this camera come from? Who's mm-hmm. filming this? And who yeah, took the time to now set it up in the cell for her to watch on a bedsheet? Which where did the bed sheet come from?
0: Right. So after she gets spooked, I guess we'll we'll paint the scene cuz you're 100% correct. After she gets spooked by the first baghead guy, who may or may not be the homeless guy, who knows. Um she gets stuck in one of the holding cells and there's a sheet hanging and then there's a home movie being basically rear projected onto it. So again, it's very complicated So, Yeah. Um but it's presumably of the cult killing themselves in the holding cell. Like, presumably that's what we're seeing. Yeah. And it's, it's presented as if it is a home movie, right? Very sinister style, as you said. And she washes them, put the bags on their heads, paint weird symbols in blood or whatever. And then, like... The the only interesting thing about it and the thing that may have been cool if the setup had been better justified is that the John Michael Payman guy, he's got his bag on his head and then he starts to pull it off. And they did a fairly good cut to where like he's he's not in the movie anymore. He's physically like in front of the sheet standing there. And, and I was like, OK, that's that's pretty good. All things considered, you know, you, you lined it up, you had everything sort of set up and edited properly nice work um
1: but why wouldn't you just have the whole thing happening in the room
0: i that was my question like (laughs) why do we have this artifice
1: evil of the
0: film you know when she could have just walked in and seen this reenactment you know theoretically that's cleaner because then it could be their ghost forms because we've already established that she's seeing ghosts or what she believes are ghosts yeah And, you know, just, just have it play out in front of her. But, you know, again, I, I think it's, it's that film school. Oh, I've got the perfect way to execute this with bros, you know, like it's just that kind of thing. And it, I mean, it's some interesting, it does let them do some interesting lighting effects because when he pulls his face off, he has a he has an upside down Pintering carpet.
1: Well, it's face. technically <laughs> just a star.
0: He just, Is it just he a just a star? It's, it's, it's true. It's just <laughs> a star. He's just like I'm a star. Uh, I'm a culty star, man. Um, and again, it's 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 not the worst practical effect I've ever seen. It it looks fine. It, They've got those.
1: It was really eighties. Like they had the the demon contacts in, and the the you know the open hurdy looking cuts, like kind of, kind of cenobite
0: Yeah, a little bit Hellraiser-ish. Yeah, sure. and yeah.
1: I'm okay with that, but I just, the way the scene played out, it kind of robbed any, any scare out of that makeup job.
0: Yeah, it's really edited too slow and we hang on it too long for, for it to be truly terrifying. Yeah. I think the lighting would have needed to be, the lighting needed to be darker, harsher. You know, he needed to see it more in silhouette with just like brief glimpses. Um, you know, the kind of stuff that James Wan sort of instinctively knows how to do. Um, you know, if you think about the first contouring, which is the only one you need to think about, um, and, and how they do the basement scene where she's in the full makeup and the crazy Darth Maul contact lenses and, you know, all that, all that stuff. The lighting in that scene is super specific to make sure that you don't I mean, you see it, but you don't necessarily see everything all at once. Some of it's in shadow. I still think and, and I don't want to make it seem like the con, the end of The Conjuring is like a pillar of restraint. It's not at all. Yeah, like, like that's even, where that movie goes. Even the, way goes he bananas, films, but.
1: even the way he films the Darth Maul demon in, in Insidious.
0: Yeah. He does oh, it in like, such a way that
1: yes. you don't actually notice that it's Darth Maul.
0: No, you don't. You don't see it. And and you know, it's it's a lesson that I think a lot of aspiring horror filmmakers don't necessarily realize is that it's it less is so much more. Yeah. Right? It's so much more because your brain, if you're engaged, will fill in all of the gaps. Yeah. And you don't have to show me everything. And and they were set up to do it. You know, they have like the uh Roger Deakins style led light bar underneath that makes it look like flames, you know? So like they had that. So why not just pull down the rest of the lights so that you just see it in this weird sort of creepy silhouette. Um, I also did not care when they do the full reveal of like the bag head ladies, yeah. which where they, which where they are in the room is real nebulous. Cause the image of them with the fresh bags on their heads is still behind <laughs> fresh the <bags>. s- <laughs> fresh bag. <laughs> Before the bags got defiled. But yet then we get these two insert shots of them, like with everything's torn when lady's like licking herself. It's, but we don't know where they are in, in, in the room. Like, are they just off to the side of the sheet? Like where are we seeing it, them? But yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just real. What I imagine happened was, is they, they did the John Michael payment stuff with him coming out of the sheet and all that, all that, we could be like ring jazz. They did that. And then they realized, Oh, but what about the girls? We could do them. And that's really simple effects. We'll do them. And then we just have these two insert shot insert shots. We, you know, we shot in like Steve's closet on a Thursday, you know, and we just yeah. put those in there or something. It,
1: it had like music video vibes.
0: And that was, it, it, I'm so glad you mentioned that because, um, like we, there are several scenes in this where it's just like pictures, like we're just being shown, still images of like the, the cultists being processed. And then we see pictures of her dad and all this stuff. And he does this, he like films the picture out of focus and shaking, you know, and it's just the most music video looking thing that I've ever seen. And then he does that several more times throughout this. And it's, it is easily the weakest filmmaking in this movie because it's nonsensical why it's doing this, you know, just show the picture. It's really fine. Like, and, and so I, I think it's, it's him trying to add energy to the sequence and trying to give it some kind of um, some kind of movement, even though there's really not much happening, but yeah, it's, it's not very good. Uh, I will say the, the last, the, the cop does return the friend cop and we see that the hole in the back of his head, cause we're told supposedly truthfully that he survived like her dad died in capturing the the payments. But this cop survived. so why does he have a hole in the back of his head? Well we're, we're shown in the hallway with finger guns, which I thought was a nice touch. I actually yeah, kind of really that was
1: liked really that. that was actually really effective.
0: That was super good and he's just at the end of the hallway and he's again he's trying to be super nice like hey, everything's okay, don't worry about it. And then he like puts his like a finger gun in his mouth and <laughs> fires the finger gun. And it blows the back of his head off. So now we know that he committed suicide after the fact. And, you know, maybe he's one of the reasons why this station is being shut down. Right. So again, some nice subtle expository work. Um, You know, we're getting details, but it's not necessarily being hammered. Right. We're not necessarily getting like, Oh, did you hear about the cop? You know, Ryan who killed himself? You know, we're not getting that kind of stuff, which I appreciate. Um, but so, so then we reach the end of the film and this is where um, there's a, a guy I watch on YouTube occasionally found flicks or something, I think. And like his whole thing is like explaining movies. <laughs> That's all he does. Yeah. Like he just is like, and, and he focuses on the ends. And apparently this movie was one of his like most requested from his, I don't know if or, or what, but like people have been asking him to do this movie forever. And then he finally did it. And, and he talked a lot about this ending. Because it, as we've mentioned, it's intentionally ambiguous. The film is is trying to is trying to hide certain things from the audience. it's trying to explain certain things to the audience in the hopes that there's some some ambiguity about what's been going on, right? And I think this is where the film really kind of mishandles some of its ideas. Uh, not, not completely, not in a way that again sort of ruins everything, but in essence, um, after this escalation, right, you know, payment is back. He's got a star carved on his face. He's chasing her through the station. She knows that his cultists are out there. That's what the girl in the, you know, the, the bad acting scene, she kills herself too, which we didn't mention, but whatever. Um, you know, that her cult, his cultists are out there that they're coming for her. You know, there's, there's an escalation intention and she's truly afraid for her life. So then we get this really rapid sequence where like people arrive and she of course believes that it's the cultists come to do culty things, I guess. <laughs> I don't really know. And, and so she runs into and encounters people in the hallways and she starts to shoot. And, and there's a lot of, the film's trying to do a lot with audio here. Like screams, yells, um, you know, background audio, things of that nature, and I don't know how does how does this this last set of sequences work for you before we get
1: you know real it, into it? it I guess it was almost too fast. Um, the rest Agreed. of the the reveals, like it, they well, we talked about they they spend so much time revealing Starface,
0: so much time. Yes, and <laughs> yet
1: this this moment, I like. I get it. it. It's all done so that you don't really understand what's happening. Because I think if you thought too long about it, it would be like, wait a minute, this isn't happening, is it? But I don't know why that's necessarily a bad thing for the audience to process that she's not really killing cult members as she continues to kill them. It it removes the steam from the dun 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 at the end, right. but I don't know if we need a done, dun. done.
0: Dun. Yeah. I, I think, you know, this is also, I mean, this is 2014. This is the height of like twist movie stuff. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I think there's a lot of things going on here. A lot of things that the filmmakers want to have happen. That. Is not happening. I think the, I think you're right. The idea behind the frenetic pace was was very intentional to sort of, I th- again, if his goal was to keep the entire movie from Harkavy's character's perspective, then it would be chaos. I don't understand what's happening. All I see are people. I'm going to shoot them. Blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I think they wanted that chaos, but I think you're 100% correct that it's too fast. It actually would have been better for the ultimate reveal if we as the audience had had a few moments to be like, wait a minute hold on a sec yeah but again it's it's a this is one of those a little bit of column a a little bit of column b like i see why you did what you did and what you did was not wrong but at the same time was it the best choice to get you to where you ultimately want to be in the moment that makes it very exciting she's running through hallways we've got bad lighting people run in they get to do the you know the blood spray onto the wall as she shoots them in the head. You know, blah blah blah. My thinking, and we talked about this a little bit already, but reiterated here, would have been she should have seen shadows, nothing but shadows, because she actually, and we as as the audience actually see people in bagheads, which we've been told bagheads are bad. Yeah. Um, she's people in bagheads and and shabby clothing running through with guns. I think it should have been nothing but chaos screams, dark figures in hallways you know like because they've like, already don't... done
1: that several times when she's stuck inside the cell
0: yeah like I I don't know why so okay so the big reveal is uh, I guess this will make more sense if we just say it <laughs> is that the hazmat team that has been and we get reminded about the hazmat team a couple times throughout the movie and, and that's fine she calls them she's like, are you guys ever coming? And they keep having to put her off. Oh, we're, you know, we're stuck at this other job. We're going to be later. We're not going to be there till like 4 a.m. or something. And so like this is the hazmat team who've come to empty the hazmat room, which presumably has all of the spooky shit in it from when the cultists killed themselves, which is hinted at throughout the film as well. And that may be the source of the evil or whatever. Um, But she's actually been shooting the hazmat team, not John Michael Payman's acolytes. And, and, but, but we, as the audience have seen baghead people with guns, we've seen them fire their guns, right? Like there are things that happen that are like this strains, this strains the credibility of, of this ambiguity that you're trying to build. And I think yeah. it would have been much more effective if, if he'd held back and sort of, I mean, again, we're already using spotlight camps. She's already running around with a flashlight, you know, the flashlight wipes across the hallway. She sees a figure at the end. Maybe we see a hazmat suit. Maybe we don't go. She shoots kills. You know, it's I I think there would have been it it would have been a little bit better for me if that had been the case. But so it it comes down to the end of it. And there's like a dude literally like laying in the door. And and we we get to hear a little bit of audio like, God, please don't, please don't. And then she just blows his head off and then she gets shot in the back. Um, by the police chief who's returned to relieve her uh, or the the sergeant, whatever it is. The old uh, and man. He shoots her <laughs> and then I guess to, to make it clear, since we've seen the, the baghead guys, we get to see the shot again and we see that it's just a hazmat dude in a suit begging for his life, right? He doesn't have a gun. He doesn't have anything. And again, this is like, okay, but you wouldn't have needed to do this if you had shot this with more forethought. You wouldn't have needed to shoot this again with a different guy in his actual suit if you had just used this used the techniques of film to obscure and obfuscate what we were seeing and how we were seeing it in the moment. It
1: right? comes across as a lack of confidence in the film's build up, I guess. That like well, we gotta show people what she's shooting at
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and, and i guess they're in the scene when which when we can't actually see what the guy is saying you know he's like saying like i talked to you on the phone today like I did, oh my god you know like like so we know that it's the dude on the phone that she's been talking to i, I don't know if that's necessary i mean who cares if that was joe or not like if he's in a hazmat suit, we'll know that that's one of the hazmat guys. Like we we get yeah. it. You know?
1: That's fine. And so then we
0: <laughs> right, and so then we get slow death reveals that the other two guys she killed were also hazmat guys, screaming and begging for their lives. Uh, and again, carrying a movie by yourself is is real hard. Um, and so I do not want to make it seem like Julia Harkavy. Did a bad job in this movie. The opposite is true. But this ending with her sort of sitting and bleeding against the wall didn't do a lot for me. Like, not at all. She's sitting there, the chief's calling it in or whatever, and then she starts singing that fucking song.
1: Why didn't she just die?
0: Just die. Like, that's... Yeah, I don't... Is she a member of the cult now? Because I
1: I actually really liked the... Utterly shocked look on her face. I thought that was great. She looked like, wait, what the you shot me? And then starts to put it together. That was really tragic and and yep. wonderful acting. And then the song. And the song ruined it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The song and then the the three cult weirdos come in and they put a bag over her head. Stupid. It's just like that's
1: that's what cults do. They put bags over your head.
0: Yeah. Um, now, again, if, if the movie was about how a cult man was trying to, like, destroy the world and that had been our focus, then this very sinister <laughs> you got a ghoul problem <laughs> ending <laughs> makes sense, right? Because now you're implying, oh, this will go on. But I think this works much better as a personal story of a woman who loses her father in the line of duty tries to do something for her community and for the world to be a good person and try and be a good cop and then through her own fear her own distrust her you know and, and maybe some supernatural weirdness i'm totally fine with supernatural weirdness ends up becoming this kind of monster and she dies shocked and afraid of what she's capable of. I think as a horror film, this is elevated by that being the story, not that some weird ass dude with bad teeth and two terrible, terrible actors flanking him uh, are going to like become the new cult demon of the world. Like that doesn't interest me at all. Right. This is, this works as a personal story. And I think that's why the film stands so strongly when it is those personal moments, when she is talking with the ghost cop and trying to have like a moment of human connection or she's she's on the phone. phone. Yeah. Like this,
1: all those, those kind of dangerous, like, oh, there's a lot of phone conversations in this. Those actually work really well. Um, yeah. But yeah, this didn't, this wasn't it. Wasn't it?
0: Yeah. It's, it's not a terrible ending by any stretch. It does not ruin the film. It doesn't, doesn't you know undo the you know 70 plus minutes of work that De Blasi had done to establish character and, and sort of build an interesting scenario. Not at all. But it's it's one of those things, in in my opinion, the film leans into the wrong thing at the end. I agree. It should have leaned into the personal and leaned into the the sense of loss and failure that she's experiencing those moments, you know, if you don't want to kill her, if she's just going to be there shocked and alive, you know, have the, the, the sergeant lean down and say something like, I didn't want this for you. I, I like, thought this, like, this, this might happen. You know,
1: this needed a quieter finish.
0: I feel like it would have been more satisfying with one, right. Instead of the, I mean, it, as we've been talking about sinister and I'm kind of back checking through this film, I'm like, oh, this is definitely trying to be sinister because I mean, yeah. sinister has that ending where it's like everything's over, and then it's like, ah, the Ghoul Face
1: done, done, done. Because it's like,
0: because it's like, you know, do you expect to see like a Marvel movie like the Ghoul will return? <laughs> sinister too. It's like, you know, it's John Michael Payman will return at Last Shift too. Yeah, and and I get it. Like every every horror film at this point, even if it is a sort of perfect standalone thing. Horror has been so inured with the idea that you must franchise. There must yeah. be more of these. You know, and, and what's crazy is that you could do that with this without leaning into any of that cult stuff. Like, you know, if if, if you're gonna make last shift too, well, guess what, motherfucker? Last shift at a convenience store. Whatever. Right? Like you could it you yeah, can like use the those...
1: use the overarching concept, not the specifics.
0: we don't not, yeah, we don't not the cult. Those. Like who cares? You know, who cares about another Charles Manson demon cult? Nobody gives a shit. But the idea of a human being struggling with their own personal demons while struggling with supernatural events alone at a strange location, that's I mean, you can make those forever. Yeah. Right? Last Shift 4: Garbage Man. Yeah, so whatever, you know, like it's, it works. So, but yeah, it just, it feels like they leaned into the, the, the real horror in this is watching this individual unravel. That's the horror of this, not the cult, not weird baghead people who lick their bloody teeth, right? Like that's not, that's not the horror stuff, at least not for me.
1: Barbecue right? sauce like, you know, is not the horror. Right?
0: That's right. That's right. Sweet baby Ray's is only going to get you so far, <laughs> right? Um, you know, and it's it that's that for me is really what it comes down to is that this had the potential. You know, you mentioned hereditary earlier. Um, obviously, you know, the film's a very aster tread in a very specific kind of horror, a kind of personal horror, an internal horror. That's this is much deeper than what this movie is trying to do. I, I, you know, I'm not trying to make an unfair comparison here, but I think this movie would have benefited from going a little bit more like Babadook direction than sinister direction. You know, that's, that's where this I think could have become, I mean, I think it's already a, a very worthy indie horror film that I think most people would enjoy, especially if you're kind of into this kind of movie, like it's, it's got a lot going for it, but I think it could have become a stone cold, like hidden gem classic if it had focused on the characters a little bit more because if anything, that was one of my biggest thoughts leaving it. My first watch is that Harkavy doesn't really get a big finish. She doesn't get to go out in this film. She gets, you know, she's got the action sequence. Sure. And there's some emotional beats prior to that. Sure. But as far as like the moment of revelation, what have I done? What have I become? you know, like she doesn't get that at all, right? She doesn't get to live in that moment or express that moment or act that moment beyond a few seconds of screen time. And so in a lot of ways, it does a disservice to the, in many ways, incredible job that she's done holding this movie on her shoulders for pretty much the whole runtime. I agree. And so that I think for me is the biggest disappointment is that it just doesn't come together in a way that is truly... It may come together in a way that's narratively satisfying, but it's not emotionally satisfying. Right? Like, we don't get that sense of emotional closure with the characters. We just get this narrative button, you know, where it's like, ah, she's got a bag on her head now. She's a bag head, like the but rest she's
1: of, them. One <laughs> of them. They got yeah, it. She's
0: one of those culty bag ladies now. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's gonna sing a song about Tuppins on stairways. She's <laughs> bag lady. Weird place for a Mary Poppins reference. So I apologize. It worked. Um, it's you know, I jokes. We got jokes.
1: Here. <laughs> jokes a million on this podcast.
0: <laughs> Disney movie jokes. <laughs> this horror movie podcast. um No, but anyway, it's like I said. I think you know, for the low, low price of free on YouTube, you can't really go wrong. Yeah. um But there are some really great moments here. So much so that when I was doing, you know, my sort of prep for the podcast and I'm looking up De Blasi, I'm like, certainly this dude's done some other stuff. Like, I mean, this is, if the, I mean, this at the very least is a pretty decent real movie. Like you can cut together some stuff from this. That's like, yeah, I know what I'm doing now. He did apparently make a slasher a few years after this. I hunted around for it um, and I, I couldn't find a super available copy. I think it might be streaming on like Peacock or something. And I just, I don't have. I mean, I could watch Peacock on my like computer, but I, I don't have like, an app on my TV or anything to watch it. Um, but I may try and look at that one. Apparently, it's a much more traditional sort of 80s slasher film, which is a genre that I don't love as much as some. I, I, I enjoy a good slasher when it's done well, and I'm, I'm kind of curious to check that one out and see what he does with that. It's his last movie, so I can't imagine that it went that great but maybe I don't know. <laughs> so I'm going to try and hunt that one down. Cause I'm really curious. Like this seems like, you know, for being, I think really his first feature film, I think most of his before, most of the stuff before this was just shorts. Um, you know, this is pretty impressive. Like it's, it's not a film that I think would have been easy to make with the resources that he probably had. So, uh, a solid flick, like I said. I, I know we kind of bagged on the ending quite a bit. Um, but that's only but, because but,
1: we hoped for more.
0: Yeah, and and it really is one of those things that all of the pieces were set up, you know, it's kind of like all of the pieces were set up to go that direction, and then just kind of right at the end, they were like, now we're going to do
1: this. Yeah.
0: We're going to go this way. And, you know, I, I get that. I understand. I mean, again, you, the horror genre is... By its very nature tropey, like horror fans expect certain things and want certain things, Um, which is why, you know, hereditary certainly has its its horror fans. But there's probably not a huge segment crossover with like your Jason fans. Right. Now, that's that's a gross overstatement. I'm sure I'm wrong about that because good horror draws in horror fans. Like if it's good, it's good kind of thing. But at the same time, if I'm making one of those, I'm not necessarily worried about that audience, right? Like that, that's just going to have to manage itself sort of thing. Like, I don't think when Robert Eggers was making The Witch, he was worried about satisfying Jason fans.
1: I hope you know? not.
0: <laughs> I just don't think he was. Yeah. Now he might have wound up satisfying some of them and then go like, oh, this is actually really cool. But I don't think it was in his wheelhouse or in his brain at all to be like, but what about those people who really love Jason Goes to Manhattan? What are they going to think? Like, I don't think that was part of I don't think that was on like the vision board in his office, be, like satisfying the Jason Goes to Manhattan fans, um, whereas I think for de Blasi, I think it might Right, like, I think he might have had that on the vision board. Well, like, how could we get that? I can't you know? imagine
1: what it's like to make a horror movie now, or or like within you know the past twenty years, even given what's happened to the genre. And if you don't make something that appeals to those consistent viewers, which you would argue the Jason crowd—they're consistent horror viewers.
0: Yeah, no, then, that's a group then you want,
1: you you've killed off, you know, a big portion of your audience or potential audience. So I'm sure like I like I said earlier, I feel like some decisions in this movie were made from a lack of confidence. Um right. just in what what they had.
0: Yeah, and maybe it's because it came together so quickly, maybe they didn't, you know, maybe that's what this needed was another couple of passes on the script to sort of really clarify its themes and and make sure that they were honing in on t- on, on the sort of big components that they were setting up and, and maybe they just didn't have the time. Again, this sounds like a very quick production. They saw an opportunity, they jumped in, they took it. And, and this is what they came up with. And if that's the case, then that's fine. Like the filmmaking is one of filmmaking, in my opinion is so great because it is, it is art. Unfortunately smashed together with pure commodity, yeah. right? You are, you are, forced into making artistic choices based upon the realities of the market. Uh, most of the time, not all the time, fortunately, but it's, it's one of those things that I think may have affected this film. And, and like I said, I wish it had gone a different direction. My wishes and what I think might've made the film a bit more of a, a horror classic, if you want to call it that um, are not necessarily enough to say that this film doesn't really still work on its own because it does. It's, it's still a really solid enjoyable little horror picture. And uh, again, for the little little price of free, (laughs) hard to be super upset about it. Um, It's hard to be like, oh, this free movie sucked. My life is ruined. You know? Um, But, you know, in this case, I think it's, it's well worth searching out. It's, it's a great, uh, great little fun time. Again, it doesn't overstay its welcome. If this film had been 10 minutes longer, it probably would have been intolerable. Um, But they, they kept it right at its like, 82-minute runtime. The sweet spot. Perfect. It's so good. Right. I mean, if anything, that's what makes it a real throwback horror film. So it's just short. It's short. No. <laughs> We're not going to beat around the bush here, you know. And I appreciate that. I like that. That's good. All right. Well, any uh, final thoughts on Last Shift?
1: Um, We did not even talk about the connection that this undoubtedly has to assault on Precinct 13. But
0: Oh, sure. Oh, my God. Yeah, we didn't talk about
1: that yeah, like that didn't even occur oh, to crap. me until just now. I was like, we're um, talking about character moments. And I'm like, you know who does good character moments is John Carpenter. Oh, John shit. Carpenter. Oh,
0: <laughs> yeah. This is assault on Precinct 13 with uh, cults and demons and stuff.
1: <laughs> um, uh, yes.
0: Yeah. No. And I, if you re- do any reading on this, a lot of people I actually have made that comparison of, of you know, it's, it's very Carpenter-esque. And, and if you look even at some of the, you know, pra- some of the the makeup effects and stuff, they're, they're kind of carpentry in their quality. Yeah. Um, you know, especially ghosts of Mars. <laughs> you think about the slicey up facey people. That's, that's a ghost of Mars kind poor of thing. Ghosts but
1: of Mars.
0: Poor ghosts Our of Mars. Our inaugural
1: episode of this podcast.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's where it all began. It's figuring out how to talk about Ice Cube and Natasha Henstridge on Mars and Jason <laughs> Statham. Uh, and Pam Brown uh, or uh, Pam Greer, Pam Greer. Yeah. So hot. I was thinking I can conflated Pam Greer, Foxy Brown. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that I, I think is kind of undeniable that, you know, we've got this police station siege of a very different type, but, you know, but we are, you know, sort of forced into the perspective of some key characters and sort of, you know, seeing this police station from the inside out and, um, definitely some some inspiration there, and and you know Carpenter. I mean, we've talked about it at length at this point. Like the man's legacy is set. His his place in cinema in general, horror cinema specifically, is undeniable. And anybody who can even sort of step into his shadow and produce something cool is is doing something great. And I think again, that's why I'm looking at DeBlasio and seeing. He hasn't made a movie since like 2015. I'm like, dude, I know it's tough, but get back in there, brother. <laughs> like, yeah. Let's try again, right? You like, you, you did it. I'll I'll watch Last Shift on YouTube again. I'll, I'll throw you a couple pennies. Support I do you. know how that works.
1: Put up a Patreon.
0: But, <laughs> yeah, put up a Patreon, Anthony. I hope you make That, you some money. that Chris Stuckman guy's making a movie. It sucks. <laughs> Come on. Have you seen that? That Chris Stuckman's making a movie? Uh-uh. Yeah, he's a, I don't know, do you know what Chris Stuckman is? He's a YouTube movie reviewer. Oh, and
1: no. And he's,
0: he's, he's fun. Like, he, he has a Star Fox tattoo, if that tells you anything.
1: Mm, um, tells me a few things. And that's,
0: it tells me <laughs> a little <laughs> hint, a couple clues. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, he, like, kickstarted a movie, and he's he's been filming that, and apparently he's in, in the editing phase now, so.
1: Well, hey. Hey.
0: Anything is possible. I'll watch it when it comes out. All right. Um, so my final thoughts are very similar. I, I think it's, it's really worth your time. I think it's a solid flick. Um, I, I enjoyed the acting for the most part. I, again, it's, it's not easy to carry a whole movie on your back. I think Harkavy does a great job. Um, not perfect, but again, I can't imagine the weight as an actor, knowing that you're going to basically be in every single scene of the film. Right, You're there for it all. Uh, that is is never easy. So um, I guess we will wrap up there. So if somebody wants to find you on the old internet and uh, share their thoughts about uh, Sinister and how you're wrong and how it's good to have a Bagul problem, where can they do that?
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter where I am regularly hosting Twitter live spaces about Bagul uh, at Baskinator. Vincent D'Onofrio.
0: Who doesn't have much to do is frequent attendee yeah constantly showing up in his. I like
1: to I mean I keep him t-shirt. on Skype, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean I think there's some sort of like crossover between Skype and Twitter spaces. You must be yeah. able to hook those together now. Oh yeah. You know, some kind of API. <laughs> um you can find me at T Baskin where I am uh running my Baghool fan site. Uh Begoolies. <laughs> <laughs> which is my mashup fan film uh, about the and ghoulies. It's just, it's just, it's just the in a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, uh, you'll find me at the No, I'm just kidding. Uh, although I am going to go grab my Twitter
1: handle, <laughs> <middle>, I think. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> if we can get Royal Dano to appear, um, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can find me at uh, T Baskin on Twitter. Uh, happy to, uh, to get to know you over there. Uh, and of course you can get us at F peace theater on Twitter. If you want to get us together and, uh, feel your piece at gmail.com. If you have an inquiry, uh, well, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for, uh, listen to us run down the last shift, a fun little horror film that again, you can find for free on the old YouTubes. Uh, just a couple of ads about Velveeta uh, and good probiotic yogurt health. And, uh, and you get to enjoy this, this great little horror film. Seems like a small price to pay in all things. Really? Uh, all things considered. Uh, all right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for listening in. We will see you next time where we look at another Fill your piece, a film that Hollywood may have forgotten, but maybe you shouldn't. I right, see you then.
1: Bye bye. <laughs>